criticisms that higher education is too expensive, too difficult to access, doesn't teach people 21st century skills are legitimate concerns. And yet the attack on liberal education and higher education as a whole, the disinvestment in higher education in ways that view it as a private commodity, as a public good, have led to the exacerbation of an already growing economic and racial segregation in higher education. And so I felt a call to action to, to address what I consider to be higher education's most significant problem. Welcome to season two of Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. The challenges facing colleges and universities short term and in the years to come are immense. And yet many institutions are adapting in surprising and inspiring ways. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with higher education thought leaders about the academic transformation that is underway. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, futurists, and others who are thinking about and experimenting with new approaches. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share with your colleagues and friends so they can join the conversation too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ingenious You, where we consider the most urgent and provocative topics that are reshaping higher education. And we get to speak with higher ed's most creative and visionary leaders. I'm joined for this episode by Lynn Pascarella, who since 2016 has served as the president of the Association of American Colleges and Universities. As a philosopher whose career has combined teaching and scholarship, with local and global engagement, Lynn has continuously demonstrated a deep and abiding commitment to ensuring that all students have access to excellence in liberal education, regardless of their socioeconomic background. We will include a link to her very impressive bio in the show notes so that you can see all of the things that she has done across the uh, course of her life. But for now, um, I just want to say welcome, uh, Lynn, and thank you so much for spending some time with the Ingenious You community. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So we like to start off, jump right in by hearing something about the story, the backstory, perhaps is a better way to say it, uh, of our listeners. And in your case, you are a first-gen college student. You started your higher ed student career at a community college. You went on to graduate from Mount Holyoke and then did your graduate work at Brown, I believe. You've been a faculty member, a provost, a college president, uh, and, and more. So could you tell us about your story, the threads maybe that sort of connect the dots for you and the influences that have contributed to your success? Yes, of course. Uh, neither of my parents had the opportunity to graduate from high school. My father, joined the war effort after the bombing of Pearl Harbor uh, when he was 16 years old and, and went and fought in the Pacific theater and then later in the, in the Korean War. My mother got married at the age of 16 at a time when 
women who are married couldn't be in school. And so she had to leave school and, and gave up her dream of, of being an English teacher. She became a single parent and uh, both of my parents were, were factory workers for their entire lives. My mother did piece work at a light switch factory. And uh, in the summers, I, I worked alongside her and certainly learned from her and her role as a shop steward about the transformative power of women's leadership and the ways that institutional and organizational cultures can be changed through a willingness to lead. Uh, when I was graduating from, from high school, I had a full scholarship to attend my state's flagship university, but decided to forego that to be a caregiver for my mother who was chronically ill. And so I decided to attend this local community college that had just opened up in my town a few years earlier. And of course, it was the best decision I ever made and the only decision I could have made uh, given my mother's illness. But uh, it was an opportunity for me to work 35 hours a week under CETA funds, the Comprehensive Employment Training Act, and to pursue an education. Uh, I spent two years there, as you mentioned, and then went off to Mount Holyoke College for my last two years of undergraduate work, and then on to Brown for my PhD in philosophy. And when I graduated, I did graduate with this deep and abiding commitment to access to excellence, regardless of socioeconomic background, to the centrality of liberal learning, but also to political scientist Benjamin Barber's notion of colleges and universities as civic missions, where we not only educate people to be free, but we free them to be educable by serving as a visible force in the lives of those who have been most underserved in our society. I had the privilege of receiving funding under CETA. I went to school under Pell Grants and Perkins loans. And I understood uh, and have never forgotten that investment in me in higher education and the difference that it made in my life. And so those leaders from my mother to the professors I had at community college who challenged me to excel, uh, and then those at, at Mount Holyoke who positioned me for success in graduate school, uh, and then the leaders in, in graduate school who, who prepared me to navigate this complex world of philosophy in academia, where we have the lowest representation of women in any field, including the STEM disciplines. And so it's a, a tra trajectory that uh, where all of my, my mentors have come together to support me in my success. What a wonderfully rich trajectory. Uh, for the work that you're now doing, in fact, as president of this very significant higher education association, um, the Association of American Colleges and Universities, I'm curious what drew you from a college presidency to the presidency of this association uh, and what it is about the work you're now doing that you mm -hmm. find most compelling. Great question. I loved being at Mount Holyoke. It was an institution that changed my life and I was so grateful for the opportunity to give back in such a significant way to that transformative institution. When I left it was because I was concerned about the national rhetoric that was calling into question the value of higher education in general and liberal education in particular and felt a, a sense of urgency about 
addressing skepticism and charges of irrelevancy and illegitimacy that were launched against liberal education. Criticisms that higher education is too expensive, too difficult to access, doesn't teach people 21st century skills are legitimate concerns. And yet the attack on liberal education and higher education as a whole, the disinvestment in higher education in ways that view it as a private commodity, as a public good, have led to the exacerbation of an already growing economic and racial segregation in higher education. And so I felt a call to action to, to address what I consider to be higher education's most significant problem. Well, and I've heard you say in other interviews, I have listened to some of the other interviews that you've given uh, in recent years, and I've heard you say uh, repeatedly that you believe that liberal education is indeed more important, more relevant today than ever. Um, I know that there's a new report out by AACNU uh, on employer views of higher education that provides evidence to support your belief. Can you tell us a little bit about that, about that report and the findings perhaps? Yes. You know, at, at AACNU, our mission is to advance the vitality and public standing of liberal education by making equity and quality the foundations for undergraduate education in service to democracy. So we believe that there's an inextricable link between liberal education and our nation's historic mission of educating for democracy. If you look at the polarization and partisanship reflected in the attack on the US Capitol on January 6th, uh, we see that educating for democracy is more critical than ever. At the same time, we need to prepare students uh, not only to be engaged citizens, but for work and for life. The report that we put out, uh, the employer survey shows that CEOs and hiring managers continue to value the broad-based interdisciplinary skills that come from a liberal education over the kind of narrow technical training that come from might come from a major. And so the, the skills that employers value the most are the critical thinking skills, oral and written communication skills, the capacity to speak across differences, to work in diverse teams, and to engage in moral and sympathetic imagination, imagining what it's like to be in the shoes of another different from oneself, all essential to uh, what we are, the, the, addressing the kinds of global challenges that we're facing right now. You know, how do you, um, how do you make sense of the gap then? Because when I, when I speak with uh, academics and educators, they, they very quickly confirm what you've just, what you've just said. And yet uh, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that there is still this gap, even at some of the, the best liberal arts colleges in the country where students and their families don't seem to understand uh, the, um, the value in terms of translation to work and uh, one's career trajectory. So um, I don't, is, it, is there something more that colleges and universities need to be doing to help students understand and make sense of the value? Well, I think we need to do a better job at articulating <laughs> and demonstrating the value ourselves. And then to help students understand the connection between what it is that we're asking them to do and their career goals and aspirations to, to create a narrative that connects learning in the classroom, outside of the classroom with the, the goals that they have for employment, using portfolios, uh, using high impact practices, assignments where they can apply 
the skills and competencies to real world problems in the context of the workforce, not apart from it. Right, yeah, and I know that's also been a, a wonderful focus area um, for uh, your association, uh, the high impact practices, going back to LEAP and the research, uh, the research in that space. Um, let me switch gears here. I, one of the other important focus areas uh, for the work that you're doing uh, is through your Office of Diversity, Equity, and Student Success. In fact, we just had uh, one of your professional staff on campus with us at BayPath doing some um, professional development. It was, it was just extraordinary, a wonderful experience. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this work and what you're trying to accomplish through the office and the, the, broader, the broader goals that you have? Yes, that was my vice president and executive director for Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Campus Centers, Tia McNair. In 2016, we started a collaboration with the Kellogg Foundation to establish centers for truth, racial healing and transformation on college and university campuses across the country with the goal of establishing 150 centers. We now have 29 centers and our aim is to jettison a belief in a hierarchy of human value to create a, a narrative that centers the stories of those who have been consigned to the lower shelves of history and to engage in critical listening and understanding racial healing presupposes that story is an action and we are engaging people in actively listening to the stories of others as a way of bridging the divides that have increased in our society uh, and, and so campus centers are working with communities to reframe the narrative and to start with the truth telling as a way of hearing different stories and coming together to ensure that we no longer view each other as, as different, but as part of the same human community. For institutions that might be interested in becoming a center, is there a process for that? There is. We do have a, a call for proposals for centers oh. that come out periodically. There's information on our website under okay. the link to our Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Centers. And we represent a diverse range of institutions. Uh, our first 10 campus centers uh, had institutions as diverse as Brown University, Duke, Spelman, Austin Community College, the Citadel, Hamlin. And so uh, we try to represent all sectors of, of higher education in achieving our shared objectives. You have the experience. You've completed the coursework in a doctoral program, but you haven't completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation status behind with Baypath University, our innovative Doctorate of Education in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies, ABD degree completion program makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started. Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the executive management skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. 
The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way, from your faculty advisor to your small community of practice group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. I'm curious if there are particular examples that you can point to of colleges or, or colleges or universities that are that are having a deep impact in advancing uh, equity, inclusion, social justice on their campuses, and or perhaps if you don't want to call them out by name, um, if there are some specific things they're doing that we can all learn from. Mm -hmm. There are so many. Uh, the ones that come to mind most immediately are Rutgers Newark. Um, where the institution itself, the leadership, the faculty, students, and staff have demonstrated a commitment to serving as an anchor institution, illustrating that their success is inextricably linked to the psychological, social, economic, health, educational well-being of those in the community in which they're located and those they seek to serve. They've worked with the local public libraries to establish programs their center is in, a public library, and they've made a difference on campus and, and through their programs. Uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County is working with youth programs in the region, uh, and they've been very effective in uh, using theater groups and uh, using a variety of community organizations to catalyze lasting change. Hamlin University, um, a mile or two down the road from where Philando Castile was killed, uh, started working with police on, on community policing reform and looking at the ways in which the press frames certain stories in ways that negatively impact communities of color. Uh, Austin Community College, again, uh, has had vibrant programs engaging community in transformation and they are serving as mentors for a number of other, our other institutions moving forward. So we, we asked, uh, the colleges and universities to identify the concerns that are prevalent in their community. There isn't a particular formula. And I think that's one of the strengths that we are working at the grassroots level to broker collaboration and make systemic, not only institutional, but inter-community uh, inter change. And it's a long, long road, isn't it? It is. Um, yeah. So. Let, let me go back and uh, I want to ask you about uh, your comments at the beginning of our conversation about the impact of a, a women's college experience. Mm -hmm. um, you speak very passionately about your own, your own experience, both as a student and then leading a, a, women's, a women's college. I mean, as you know, the number of single gender 
women's colleges has continued to decline over the past, uh, the past few years. And uh, as you think about the future, is there a particular role or, or niche that you think that uh, a women's college can and should continue to, to play? Um, I guess it's the relevancy question. I'm, re I'm really looking at, you know, what, uh, what is the relevancy today and going forward um, of a single gender, a women's, a women's institution? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's absolutely relevancy. One of the great strengths of American higher education is the diversity of institutional types. Uh, the first community of women that I, I was in was the factory I worked in with my mother. And uh, the, the only men in the factory were in the boss's office or on the loading dock or in the catering trucks out in the parking lot. And uh, so, as I mentioned, I saw the ways in which um, women's leadership can help to transform institutional and organizational cultures. If we look at higher education, we have the same kind of barriers to women's leadership as, as there are in the factory I worked in. Um, there are not only glass ceilings, but I think more importantly, what Kate Burhide has referred to as the sticky floor, where women are not advancing because they're not getting promoted to department chair as a, an essential first step in advancing in leadership in the academy. And that's because of a variety of reasons. But we've seen as a result of COVID-19, that disparately negative impact on women and faculty of color in terms of research productivity, uh, in, in promotion and tenure processes, the caregiving responsibilities. Much of the work that women do in the academy goes unrecognized in the promotion and tenure process. And until we change those structures, those policies and practices, institutional barriers to success, um, there will be a problem with equity in the academy. The same is true in so many different fields. Women's colleges prepare women to play a leadership role in uh, understanding that there's nothing that is outside of their purview. And increasingly, and they also provide role models in, in terms of uh, gender equity, transgender students, conversations around uh, what it means to face oppression within a particular society and how to overcome that. So I, I think these types of institutions are indeed more important than ever. Um, they play a role and they will continue to play a role for as long as higher education exists. So the educational sector, higher ed in particular, is, is rapidly changing. Uh, that's that's a uh, understatement, I guess you could say. So as the next generation of leadership uh, tries to prepare for those changes, uh, most of which we can't really anticipate uh, at this point, what knowledge and skills do you think we should be cultivating uh, in anticipation uh, of the unknown in many ways, the future of education? Do you have, do you have some thoughts about that? Um, I do. <laughs> I think uh, it is more important than ever that, that leaders on campuses engage in what we know to be essential characteristics of successful leadership, and that is uh, transparency, collaboration, collegiality, a commitment to shared governance. These will be more important than ever as we face the 
the challenges of the future that will require us to allocate scarce resources to address the equity mandate that is before us. Uh, we have to move away from the deficit model that has been employed for so long and look at an asset-based perspective in terms of admission and evaluation of our students. We have to assess students in relation to a trajectory over time as opposed to looking at how they perform uh, on a Saturday morning on a standardized test, asking them to answer questions for which we already know the answers instead of asking them to demonstrate how they would grapple with the unscripted problems of the future. So interrogating the policies and practices, the institutional barriers that uh, prevent this more equitable look at, at higher education and, and engaging in authentic leadership, yeah. moving away from authoritarian autocratic approaches to strong leaderships, viewing that as a strong leader instead of uh, saying that authentic leadership often demonstrated by women and faculty of color um, is the way that we should be going in the future where we all have to work together. There are so many different constituencies and, and different demands on, on college leaders today that this too is, is a an imperative. Mm, which makes such a powerful case for continuing to diversify the leadership pipeline, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, well, our time is coming to a close, um, but I have one final question and it's a related question. Um, and here's the question, given your current role, you have such a wonderful perch now from which to observe what's happening across and within the higher education sector. So can you tell us something about the shifts that you're seeing from where you sit um, and what you see as the biggest challenge and greatest opportunity facing those of us in the higher ed sector in the next 10 to 15 years? Mm -hmm. now, colleges and universities demonstrate a remarkable resilience in the pivot to online and remote learning uh, after March 2020 when we saw the need to move off college and university campuses. At the same time, that move unveiled the expansiveness of the digital divide food and economic securities and experienced by so many students at all types of institutions across the country. In the future, we really need to focus on not just access to excellence in higher education, but ensuring that all students are given the opportunity to thrive by being given the support necessary for student success. Uh, my colleague at, at AACNU, Sia Versheldon, talks about bandwidth recovery and the ways in which addressing issues of racism, sexism, homophobia, food and shelter insecurity reduce our capacity for learning. We can't think about how we're going to do on the biology test to, on, on Tuesday if we're worried about whether we're going to be beaten to death because we're sleeping in our car or where our next meal is coming from, how to care for the children. And so recognizing the ways in which faculty can intervene in restoring cognitive bandwidth through creating a sense of welcome and belonging in the classroom and beyond is truly more important than ever. And institutions have to work together. Uh, college, uh, community colleges have to work with four-year institutions. All institutions need to partner with K through 12 business and industry to ensure that there's a seamless transition 
from college to career, integrating work and life, uh, and, and truly uh, guaranteeing that we are fulfilling our nation's promise of the American dream through higher education. Mm, boy, such wise, wise and compelling words. So Lynn, thank you so much. It's been such a privilege to have this conversation and to learn from you. And uh, I wish you all the best in your continued leadership work. It's such important work that you're doing. So thank you for giving us this, this time and the benefit of your wisdom. Oh, it was truly my pleasure and wonderful to be with you today. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson, Sequoia Cox, and Marcy Moore. Ingenious You is a production of CELEP, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education monthly webinar series. In our next episode, I sit down with Dr. Nathan Graw, who is the Ada M. Harrison Distinguished Teaching Professor of the Social Sciences and Professor of Economics at Carleton College. Most higher ed professionals are familiar with Nathan's work. His 2018 book, Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education, informed the projection of an impending demographic cliff that is on everyone's radar right now. Nathan has recently completed a follow-up research project and book, The Agile College, and during our conversation, he shares what he has learned from the institutions that he profiles in this book, many of which are pursuing transformative strategies that we can all learn from. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.